Hello, traders, analysts, and other followers of the energy industry. My name is Corey Stewart, and I'm a senior analyst with Refinitiv, your go-to partner for energy analysis and data. As always, I'm here with Jim Mitchell, Refinitiv's head of America's oil analysts. The last couple of podcasts, Jim and I have discussed the China-U.S. relationship and its impacts on Western Hemisphere energy. That has proved to be an ongoing saga, with this week seeing Peter Navarro causing a scare that the Phase 1 trade deal may be over. Evidently, it's still on, but the volatility of this relationship will likely continue, and Jim and I will continue to analyze it in the context of energy. But today, we'll be shifting our attention to pipes, production, and ports in the Americas. Jim, what, what have you got for us today? So in this episode, we will focus on the continued growth within our industry. In spite of the epidemic and the downturn that was happening before the epidemic, new projects are still being developed. CapEx has not gone to zero. Corey and I will limit much of our conversation to the crude side of the market. The refinery and the NGL side deserve and will get their own time in the light. So let's head to the Eastern Canada side. As I mentioned in the previous weeks, the Terra Nova extension project is on hold. This project is a retrofit for the FPSO. The idea is to extend the life of this ship for another 10 years and give it the ability to produce an additional 80,000 barrels a day. The 10-year extension should coincide with the life of the production. West White Rose expansion took a pandemic break for March, April, and May, but is now back in operation. West White, White Rose expansion is a concrete fixed platform, so it's sitting on the seabed floor, with tiebacks back to the FPSO C-Rows, which has been in operation at the White Rose field since April of 2004. The Bay du Nord drilling started in October of 2019, but was put on hold for financial reasons until 2022. I actually hope this comes back before that. This, this is the next big thing in Canadian oil production. The Bay du Nord field will be the first production from the Flemish Pass. Hibernia, Hebron, White Rose, and Terra Nova are all from the Jean d'Arc Pass. The expected oil will look quite a bit different from the established production. Hebron is a 20.4 API. White Rose is a 29.4 API. Bay du Nord is looking more like a 36 API with a 0.4 sulfur. Finally, there are some nat gas pipes being decommissioned, Deep Panook and Sable Island. The reason I mention these pipes is we may see these names again in the future as they get put back into oil service. So moving to the west side. The west side of Canada is marked with some multi-billion dollar projects. But let me start with a small one. Martin Hills Pipeline is a 53-mile crude and condensate line. So why is this worth mentioning? This is a bottleneck breaker for the Edmonton refineries and upgraders and it just started running. Now to the behemoths. Trans Mountain expansion is proceeding on four different fronts. The pipeline continues to lay new pipe and add 12 new pumping stations. Number two, the terminal is building 14 new tanks, about 3.9 million barrels of tankage. Three, Burnaby Terminal and the Westridge Terminal and Dock are about four kilometers apart. Kinder Morgan is laying two new 30-inch diameter pipes to complement the existing 24-inch diameter pipe. And four, the Westridge Terminal and Dock is building three new berths, 
which will obsolete the single berth when they are finished. They're designed to load Aframax-sized ships, as this is the biggest ship that the Port of Vancouver will allow. The sheet piles, uh, still makes me giggle, will be finished November of 2020. Sheet piles look like corrugated tin roofing material, but are made of steel and about half an inch thick. And they will serve as the outer edge of the bulkhead. When these get uh, installed, they will act as the uh, beginning of the manufacture for the bulkhead. Also, Trans Mountain Pipeline is building 1.31 million barrels of tankage in Edmonton. So speaking of controversy, let's look at the Keystone XL Pipeline. This project is designed to go in a 45-degree angle south and east from Calgary to Steel City, Nebraska. The project is on hold as a Montana District Court judge ruled the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers violated the Federal Endangered Species Act by granting the permit. Basically, the pipeline cannot cross any streams in the U.S. The Army Corps, TC Energy, and President Trump are all appealing. However, the Alberta portion of the pipeline will start to be laid this summer, the idea being extra takeaway from Calgary to Hardesty. Along with this much-needed pipeline expansion, some tankage is being built. TC Energy is building 1.9 million barrels of tankage in Fort Saskatchewan, which, oddly enough, is in Alberta on the Saskatchewan River. TC Energy is building 2.6 million barrels of tankage in Hardesty, and Gibson Energy is building 1.5 million barrels of tankage in Hardesty. Okay, so you've tied the U.S. in a bit with Keystone, but I understand you're seeing a lot of projects working in, in the U.S., Oh, no doubt about that. But, you know, as one would expect, the pandemic has squashed a lot of the new drilling in the U.S. But let's take a look at the three big basins on land, Bakken, Eagleford, and Permian, from the time of October through May. For Bakken, the number of completed wells dropped from 127 in October to just 30 in May. Newly drilled wells are showing similar numbers. The ducts, drilled but uncompleted wells, actually rose from 809 in October to 864 in May. For Eagleford, the numbers aren't quite as severe. Completed wells dropped from 193 to 68, and newly drilled wells dropped from 167 to 55. The ducks also dropped from 1454 to 1349. The trend of less severe decline also applies to the Permian. Completed wells moved from 542 in October to 195 in May, newly drilled wells from 500 to 201, and the ducks from October through May actually increased slightly from 3433 to 3468. Point of all that, Bakken is being affected dramatically more than the two Texan basins. Why? My speculation has to do with the razor-thin margin world that we're in and the cost to move the barrels. Bakken were always be behind Eagleford in the cost structure for Texas refineries. So moving offshore, I know of 14 projects that came online between Q4 2019 through now. Anything that is not online now is likely on hold. I know of only two projects that are still in process and mostly because they're both very near completion. Atlantis North Phase 3 
is a 50-50 partnership between BP and BHP Billiton and Manuel, which is a tieback to BP's Nakika platform. That's a 50-50 partnership between BP and Shell. Moving to the pipes. Many of the pipe pro projects that are still ongoing are connector kind of projects, breaking bottlenecks as opposed to long-haul solutions. There are some long-haul projects ongoing, though. Dakota Access Expansion will be adding 500,000 barrels of takeaway from Bakken to Potoka, bringing the total takeaway to 1.1 million barrels a day. That could change the well dynamics in the Bakken that I just talked about. Midland Echo 3 is a 450,000-barrel-a-day 400, enterprise pipeline project that got pushed back from the end of 2019 to the end of 2020. The big kahuna here is the Wink-Webster pipe. Wink is a small town about 20 miles south of the corner where New Mexico jets into Texas. 650 miles away, Webster is a small town just southeast of Houston. This project is a 36-inch diameter pipe that boasts 1.5 million barrels a day of takeaway from the southern part of the Permian Basin. The quirky thing with this project is who is involved. Two refining companies, Exxon and Delic, four pipeline companies, Plains, Marathon Logistics, Enterprise, and Lotus, which some of you may know as Centurion, and one single midstream company, Rattler Midstream. One pipeline that just came online is the Harvest Midstream Pipeline. This is a 24-inch, 600,000-barrel-a-day pipeline that feeds the Ingleside section of the Port of Corpus Christi. A couple of big export players over on the Ingleside side. And also, this pipe is in place to set up for the Blue Water Terminal, which I'll talk about in a minute. Some notable pipeline project delays. Keystone XL in the U.S. is stuck in legal purgatory. Enbridge Line 3 is, the, is significantly changing the path in order to avoid one of the best fishing lakes in my home state of Minnesota. Bring bug spray if you go. After multiple environmental studies, the project is back on track. And finally, the Seahorse Pipeline has gone through 10 extensions to its open season, so I wouldn't hold my breath on that one. Moving to the ports, the offshore ports. There are three applications outstanding for development of offshore SPM, single port mooring systems in the US. Blue Water, Texas is offshore Corpus Christi, 21 miles. This is a 50-50 between Trafigura and P66. The project consists of two SPMs, two 30-inch pipes, that will be able to load a single VLCC at the rate of 80,000 barrels an hour, or if two VLCCs are loading simultaneous, 40,000 barrels an hour to each. Final investment decision is expected around September of this year. Another project awaiting FID, final investment decision, is the Seaport Oil Terminal, also known as SPOT. This project is a bit up the coast from Corpus, in Freeport, Texas. It will be located 30 miles offshore. Yep, that's how far you have to go to get to 115 feet of water. This project consists of two SPMs, two 36-inch pipes, and can load a single VLCC at a rate of 85,000 barrels an hour. Enterprise and Enbridge are looking 
at July as the time to make the final investment decision. Finally, Texas Gulf Link is a bit behind the other two as they are still awaiting some environmental studies. All three of these offshore SPMs will not be built. And if I'm a betting man, and I am, I'd bet on Spot getting built and Blue Water Texas getting delayed about six months. So just a couple of terminal expansions to touch on. Uh, P66 is adding 2.2 million barrels of tankage and some pumps to increase the load rate at their Beaumont facility. Harvest Midstream's uh, terminal has 10 million barrels of storage and docks are being built in the Ingleside section of the Port of Corpus Christi. This will be completed in Q3. I suspect you're going to hear a lot more from this name as it relates to crude oil export. Finally, Epic is very near completion of its east dock in Corpus Christi, along with another 2.1 million barrels of storage, which will bring their total storage in Corpus to 7.5 million barrels of storage. And they will be able to load two Aframaxes simultaneously from their east and west docks. Wow. So we have a lot going on here in the U.S. Um, what about investment in Mexico? So President Obrador and the Mexican Congress are looking at $92 billion in energy investment, literally 275 projects with initiation dates from 2020 through 2024. Now, a big chunk of that is power gen and renewables, and another big chunk is net gas production, transport, and storage, and even some LNG. The world knows that President Obrador is at odds with the 2013 constitutional amendment that opened the oil sector to private producers. His model favors service contracts rather than equity deals. Also, these infrastructure projects all need to be privately funded. Corey, who do you think is going to fund that? <laughs> yeah, I wonder. <laughs> if only there was a massive economy looking to finance infrastructure deals around the world. So let's look at some of these projects. The Dos Bocos Refinery, I've talked about in the last few episodes, will continue to be the centerpiece of the Make Pemex Great Again campaign. The Nueva Tiapa to Selena Cruz oil pipeline exists now. It's a 30-inch diameter pipe and is about 270 kilometers long. However, if Mexico wants to uh, compete in this route, they're going to need a lot more uh, pumps, and they are in the process of negotiating a contract to build those pumps. The Zama oil field discovery will reposition what Mexican oil production looks like, but that's going to be a couple years out. Two other projects I know of, ENI's Mitsun 2 production is currently pretty light at 15,000 barrels a day, but will ramp up to 100,000 barrels a day next year when the FPSO gets in place. Pemex has a project called Quest Key. It's producing about 68,000 barrels a day. It too will ramp up to 110,000 barrels a day in 2021. The interesting thing about this project is this reservoir is thought to contain about 500 million recoverable barrels of oil. And both Mitsun 2 and Quest Key are, loaded in, are located in Tabasco. The three projects that are a priority for President Obrador are the Salina Cruz port expansion and the Trans-Isthmus rail expansion and the Trans-Isthmus highway expansion. The idea being 
to compete directly with the Panama Canal. The highway expansion is a project to widen Highway 185, which is the bulk of the distance between Coast and Salina Cruz. It's currently a two-lane highway. The project is already underway to widen Highway 185 to four lanes for about 100 miles of length. The Trans-Isthmus Rail Expansion sits neatly between two mountain ranges and is about 30 kilometers long. Ferro Sur is a transit company in Mexico, and they already operate on this route, but the tracks need updating and a new load and unload terminals need to be built at the origin and destination points. Finally, the Salina Cruz port expansion is a critical piece if Mexico has any hopes in competing with Panama. Here's the issue with that. The oil port is currently between 23 and 30 feet deep, so seven to nine meters, far too shallow for anything except an MR-sized ship. In order to compete, this port needs to be at least 12 meters deep. So that's three to five meters of muck and mud to dredge. And perhaps even more important, that's 3.5 meters of muck and mud channel to maintain. That's going to be expensive, but they're already in the process of doing that. Also, the Salina Cruz port is building new docks and even lengthening the breakwater that protects the port. So, Corey, let's start South America off with Brazil today. What do you see in there? Well, <clears throat> before jumping into our theme today, um, let's take a quick inventory of Brazil's macro environment especially as fears emerge of a second wave of coronavirus and more economic turmoil. Uh, I think this is especially important as we've seen you know, states, even here in the United States, uh, kind of putting off the reopening efforts because of uh, some new cases. Sliding over to ICON, here are some approximate numbers for you to digest. As of June 23rd, the cumulative number of coronavirus cases was 9.2 million in the world. Of that number, 4.2 million were still active, while 4.5 million were recoveries and the remaining 472,191 were deaths. A quick disclaimer here, these are official numbers. So for example, China's official World Health Organization cumulative number of cases was 85,000. The country with the highest rate of infection is the US with 2.3 million cases and is followed by Brazil with 1.1 million. Brazil's population is 211 million people while the US population is 327 million. Thus, the two countries' infection rates are about the same, but the U.S. has a higher fatality rate at 5.5%. Still better than Belgium's 15% fatality rate, but slightly worse than Brazil's 4.5% fatality rate. As I've stated before, Brazil being the country that has experienced the second highest number of infections in the world is why President Bolsonaro has, got the, has garnered so much flack. He's even been ordered by a judge to wear a mask in public. While the world is expected to see GDP contract approximately 5% this year, Brazil GDP growth is forecasted to be negative 6.3. We've covered before Petrobras' offshore platforms and workers being infected with COVID, and how Petrobras expected to cut production 200,000 barrels per day due to lower world demand, but it quickly turned this around a demand pool from China. May liquids production by Brazil was over 4 million barrels per day, with at least 3.7 million, million barrels per day of that crude oil. Looking into ICON, I see about 1.6 million barrels per day being exported from Brazil. At least since January of 2019, 
about 40% of Brazil's crude oil exports have come out of the Angra das Reis area, west of the city of Rio de Janeiro. If you add in the volumes coming from the Santos area and the Acu area, then you capture the ports where an average of 85% of Brazil's crude oil exports are loaded. We examine Acu a bit closer. This port is responsible for about 15% of Brazil's crude oil exports. Of the crude loaded there, about 17% makes its way to China. The port has had significant enhancements as of late, most notably the commissioning of the gas natural Acu LNG to power project, one of the largest such projects in Latin America. And I also understand that Petrobras intends to export more crude from the port. The Acu Petrolio is expected to construct more crude oil storage there and to complete piping projects to supply the Reduc refinery in the city of Rio de Janeiro. And there are plans to construct a small refinery near the port as well. The implications of this are such that we could see Brazil becoming an even more flexible supplier of crude oil and other commodities. Of the eight refineries for sale prior to the pandemic, Reduc was not one. I understand that Acu Petrolio is considering piping to one of the four cell refineries as well, but I have a feeling this would be largely dependent on who the buyer is. If Petrobras is able to offload those refineries at all, the pandemic will subside at some point. Infrastructure investments such as these will play, a, will play a part in helping the Brazilian oil industry capitalize on its resource and perhaps help Petrobras more easily get its crude to market and work down its debt. Yeah. So I understand you have some intel on Argentina today. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, looking back, I've not really spoken that much about Argentina. I mean, granted, its crude production has been flat to declining for 20 plus years. And really, Vaca Morta was supposed to be the next big shell play and the savior of Argentina's oil industry. But the pandemic and oil price war really put a hold on that. I'll come back to this point. Argentina is something like the 20th largest economy in the world and the third largest in Latin America. However, the country has bounced back and forth between growth and contraction for years. Argentina recently defaulted on its debt. The first quarter this year, the country's economy contracted 5.4%. So I expect that for, that for 2020, Argentina will experience GDP growth of negative 10%. We looked at Argentina's oil industry. YPF's renationalization in 2012 was led, has led to ongoing legal battles, and Argentina has tried several times in vain to have these actions dismissed. Well, it hasn't happened. And if Peterson, Energia, and Vesora wins against the nation, damages are expected to reach between three and ten billion dollars. So anyway, back to Argentinian crude oil production. Earlier this year, YPF had a plan to spend 1.8 billion this year to develop Vaca Morta. This was based on $60 barrel, uh, $60 barrel crude. And given that we began the year with oil prices approaching 70, uh, it was far more realistic plan than we've seen elsewhere. It goes without saying this dream's been crushed, and in fact, other Argentine production has been losing money as well. That's led the country to impose a minimum domestic price floor of $45 per barrel for Medanito crude. Argentina has 632,000 barrel, barrels per day of installed refining capacity. The country keeps a lot of its crude for domestic refining, and the country has historically been an importer of refined products. The refinery utilization pre-pandemic averaged in the high 70s. So ballpark crude runs in Argentina about 500,000 barrels per day, while exports have averaged just under 60,000 barrels per day. 
I don't really have current utilization, but exports from the country of crude have achieved 168,000 barrels per day in April and 127,000 in May. Thus far in June, I have about 110,000 in the books. It's not really great for a country that hoped to achieve 1 million barrels per day of production by 2023, so as to achieve a 500,000 barrel per day export number. Given that the two bright spots in Argentina are agriculture and energy, when we see the world come back to the brink, I believe we'll see more in the way of crude oil production from the country. But being that I'm in the U.S., we'll yeah. see how those volumes flow. Historically, about 31% of Argentina's crude oil exports have flowed to the U.S., most of which ended up on the West Coast, and the bulk of which were Escalante. Perhaps if we see trade pick, up, pick back up and a real adoption of VLSFO, heavy sweets like Escalante will fetch a supportive premium for Argentina. Yeah, let's hope so. Man, I'm still stuck on three to ten billion in damages. Whew. Yeah, crazy. What else you got happening in South America? Well, let's go around the horn here. So, uh, you know, I've discussed Suriname before and, you know, how Exxon has taken a further interest there as it has had fortune in Guyana. Uh, well, there's about to be a new government, Suriname. The new controlling party has vowed to, quote, reconstruct the nation's oil industry. We'll see what that means and if we can expect the country to pull its sub 20,000 barrel per day uh, production up further. In Colombia, the country hoped to achieve production of 900,000 barrels per day this year. With low demand and low prices, they've revised that figure to 820,000 barrels per day. Contrast that with the 885,000 uh, BPD that they've produced in 2019. Now, Columbus Mining and Energy Minister expects production for 2020 to average 820 BPD. Uh, the country's crude exports have been relatively stable, though for June's 513,000 barrels per day of exports, more Caño Limón was exported than normal, pushing Basconia exports below its 54% of total crude exports volume. And finally, to our pipelines part of our theme, <clears throat> issues persist in Ecuador. Petro Ecuador shut the SOTE, the SOTE pipeline, Ecuador's main crude export pipe with a capacity of 360,000 barrels per day over concerns of soil erosion. In April, a landslide had caused SOTE and another pipeline to burst. I'll keep an eye on this and how it affects the South American crude balance. But for today, but for today that's all for me. Jim? So this lengthy list of projects is testimony to the strength and resilience of the oil industry in the Americas. Sure, the pandemic has put a hold on some projects and then to others, but money continues to flow into the America's oil space. Next week, Corey and I will explore this strength by looking at the impact of the oil business on the economies of the Americas. All right, thanks, Jim. And as a reminder, Jim and I will be having a panel discussion with David Fife, Argus Media's chief economist, this coming Tuesday about recent developments with OPEC+. Plus. Look for the sign-up to that webinar on social media, Argus, or Refinitiv's websites, or reach out to one of us, and we'll send you the link. But for now, thanks, and have a great week.